You've written a script. I haven't written a script, I have written some notes. You've written a script. I've done a script. Oh, yeah, that is a script. That is a script. Now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Natasha, and I'm here with Jeremy, Matt, and Arch. And in this episode, uh, we're talking with Stuart Harrison, who's a Melbourne architect and author, and he was the keynote speaker for the recent uh, New Zealand Architecture Week. How did we get in touch with him? He's a good friend of a colleague of ours, Patrick Sloan. That's right. And we were offered up Stuart on a plate, practically. That's right. And he said he'd love to be involved. So he was super generous with his time and met with us, along with all the other heaps of people that he undoubtedly met during Architecture Week, because he had a very full schedule. So all you all knew of Stuart Harrison before yep. this happened? Quite well? No, no, just knew of him. Would you call him famous? He's famous in uh, niche podcasting circles. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to no, be, he's he's gonna be more famous now. Um, He's certainly, he's certainly very well known as a communicator and an author. I mean, they, they did 400 episodes of the, of the radio show, The Architects, which is a not insubstantial piece of community outreach mm. on a broadcasting sense. That's aside from the kind of developing, um, you know, volumes of research and, and, and books about housing and the, the Australasian experience of housing. Mm. Mm. And that was over a 10-year period too. Mm. Mm. So Tash, you and Arch spoke to him when he was here. What did you ask him about first? I think the general topic of our conversation was around um, housing in suburbia, which is what his latest book, New Suburban, is all about, um, and also what he was here to talk about for Architecture Week. Mm. And he's a, um, he's a great chatter, so it was actually really hard work getting <laughs> this episode down to something manageable, because there's just so much great stuff in it that we talked to him about that we might actually try and weave our way into future topics. Suburbia gets a bad rap. It does. It does. But it's fair to say you're a supporter. Why do you think the suburbs are so important? I'm a crit- I'm a critic of the of the of, of suburbia in the, in the broad sense of the word mm. criticism. I I lived in the suburbs as a kid, and in some ways I'm still dealing with that. Um, and I've spent 20 years outside of that living environment. But a few years ago, it felt like it was time to re-engage with the suburbs. Um, because I felt that, and it partly came out of doing a uh, radio show and be, being part of this broader project, that the separation between kind of like general housing, for example, if we're mm. talking about housing, and elite architect designed housing, was had a spatial mapping, which was really around the large majority of the metropolitan city suburban context, architects didn't tend to work, these are just generalisations, didn't tend to work, architects tended to work in wealthier inner suburbs and the central city and coastal locations or, you know, tree change locations. And so where most people live, where most housing is provided, the architectural design wasn't having much impact. And so it seemed to me that like, let's, and I I think this conversation is only just starting. Uh, and really the, the book, New Suburban, was just about kind of starting that conversation and trying to look for people who are thinking in a similar way. Is this a, are other people interested in this? And it turned out they are. So how do we begin to re-engage with the provision of general housing? And how do we do that through, I guess, transferring some of the remarkable kind of idea capital, design capital that exists within the architectural industry and start 
applying it more generally. Um, and that's why I'm interested in this idea of kind of prototypes and how we might begin to apply this and returning to some previous models that have had a go at this. The suburbs are a high amenity environment at its best. High amenity, a focus on outdoor space, can be well connected, can allow for successful um, affordable housing, can allow for you know bringing out families, all that sort of stuff. I feel that particularly the Australian suburb has lost some of these qualities. Essentially, the Australian backyard has been internalised. Mm. Um, we've created an, an enormous amount of downlit interior space, which well, I'm not sure what we're going to do with mm -hmm. that, but it may be useful at some point. So there's a bit of nostalgia in there as well for the suburb of maybe the 70s and the 80s. But how do we re-engage with that world? Because that is still the reality for a lot of people. Yeah, it's not going away, right? No, no. matter what happens in that kind of intense urbanisation, and our discussion here has been quite biased towards densification in the centre. Yep. What's really refreshing about, about the book is it just, re, it just rebalances that conversation mm -hmm. to kind of go, let's not forget that those things aren't going away. It would be easy to cut the, cut the rope and cast them away yeah. metaphorically, but actually, where are they at? Where can they be? Yeah. How can they deliver on all of these mm -hmm. things? More you know? suburban houses will be built <coughs> this year than apartments mm -hmm. uh, across, well, certainly across Australia. By a country mile. Yeah. In Melbourne, that's changing. But there is that sense that, yeah, we need to engage with this world because... What I've, what I've noticed is these worlds are just too comfortable in their separation. The provision of general housing, volume home builders in a successful business model delivering poor outcomes for a plentiful amount of purchases. Mm -hmm. And then architects who are just complain about that a lot to each other and design bespoke expensive houses for not themselves, because they barely afford them, mm. but for um, wealthy clients who fetishise them. So how do you re-mesh re this, this paradigm? Um, and so one of the things I talk about, as do a lot of people, is Robin Boyd's small home service that worked in the 60s, 70s, that was an opportunity to provide well-designed houses in a, in, in, a, in a planned format. You buy the design a new plot to a site. Now, our training tells us that's horrific, but it's actually okay. If you mm -hmm. get the orientation right, you can prototype good design. You can replicate, you can unitize it to some extent. And Boyd worked this out. Boyd is kind of the genius who sits over everything I do. Understood all these issues a long time ago. And set up the small home service, got these great architects and selling houses plans. So there's all these well-designed houses across the Melbourne suburbs from that period. Mm. At its peak, the small home service, which was ran in conjunction with the Australian Institute of Architects and the Age newspaper, at its peak, it was delivering one third of all housing built in Melbourne. Wow, that's amazing. So did you buy the plans through a coupon in the newspaper? Five pounds. Yeah, it's incredible. And I mean, you know, the Eames... buy a Robin Boyd house for five pounds. The Eames the intellectual would be property. all over it, right? The Eames didn't want to design one chair and sell one chair. They no. were all about mm. that, that uh, uh, mass production of high quality design. Yeah. And this is Boyd trying to apply this and solving the problem of provision of housing. Mm. For some reason, we don't do this now. We've actually got worse at this. The three books that I've done, what I'm increasingly thinking is that these are kind of, it's a potential pattern book. Mm. You know, and that's the, if I did another book, um, that's what it would be. Mm. It would kind of be the bridging thing between like, well, here's, you know, it might be it's a book of, 
you know, I mean, there's, there used to be a tradition of doing this, um, yeah. of books of standard houseplants you could buy. Mm. I remember I, I, I still have somewhere a book called Houseplants for the 80s. <laughs> I didn't realise they were doing them that late. I mean, yeah, I knew that it was earlier. Uh, yeah. An American book. You know, so what about houseplants for the 20s? Yeah. You know, yeah. you, you, talk to the, you talk to the architects, you go, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And if someone wants to build one of these houses, what, what, you know, what's the, how do we, how do we handle the IP? How do we handle the risk? Is it a, is it, is it a template for doing things going forward? And there's an amazing picture here of this really, bu not bucolic's not the right word, but um, this amazing image of a suburb. These are all, these are all from these kind of sort of pre-sold design packages. Robin Boyd, Wolfgang, Sievers. Yeah, it's a Sievers photograph of a Robin Boyd design subdivision. Right, right. Um, in Apple Tree, uh, Apple, Apple Tree um, Estate, and this is just an example of a well a well done subdivision. And Boyd did a lot of subdivision design. We don't hear a lot about it. Mm. But don't you actually think that's the key to unlocking this sort of thing too? I mean, the interesting thing for me about suburban housing is that it actually it goes right back to the lot, the proportion of the lots, the way they're laid out, Absolutely. and then how that ties in with the current planning regulations. Because, you know, and you can see that in parts of Auckland already. I mean, these houses that are plonked in the middle of this site, you know, essentially the, the, the sort of donutted by, by a thin strip of um, outdoor space, these are a direct product of that subdivision pattern in the, the planning regulations. The subdivision design is critical. Mm. You get that right. And Boyd did some subdivision design, and there are some good examples of good suburban subdivision design. I'm doing some research at the moment on a, a state in Perth called Crestwood um, from 1970 that uh, was a Paul Ritter designed Radburn model applied to a Perth suburb but evolved the model a bit. It's kind of regarded as a failure, but it, I went there recently and it's, it's great. Mm. Really high amenity, good low density suburban environment, which could have further um, densification if it if it needed it. So I agree entirely. That, and I think that image, that Seavers image of apple tree, um, shows how front lawns, if you don't fence them, you don't get you don't fortress the suburb, mm. which is kind of the contemporary phenomena. Big setbacks, you know, setbacks can be really good. Big setbacks. No fencing; those front lawns become a communal park. That's right. Mm, yeah. yeah, and that, and you know, the, the current model, all that separation between them. You know, it, it, it you know, I've argued that it, it actually builds in isolation. It mm. actually designs in isolation. You enter your property through in your car. Yeah. And you go into your garage and you yeah. have your internal. And there's one access. window facing the street, and the yeah. blinds are always drawn. Mm. Yeah, and for some reason we shut ourselves off and. There might be a whole series of complex cultural reasons for why we're why we're doing that, but we kind of need to actively fight against it. So that's stuff that town planners often advocate for, you know, interaction with the street. That's a good idea. Mm. It's basic Jane Jacobs stuff. Mm. Eyes on the street. And but, it, but there's a number of different ways of achieving it too, and I, I do think it's rather interesting that, you know, a lot of these new suburbs have got fairly clear urban design guidelines but they're quite prescriptive in terms of the way that they're laid out. And I understand that in, in terms of you need to get some kind of continuity and so on, but I think these suburbs prove that there are there are ways, different ways of doing things too. It doesn't have to be all kind of loaded directly to the street or, you know. Yeah, yeah. and I think you've got to remember that at the heart of the suburban is an idea, a good old-fashioned right-wing idea about individual freedom. Yeah. Um, and the idea that you could build a house pretty much however you wanted it to. Now, 
in some ways we've moved away from that because we don't you know no one trusts each other mm. um, but that idea of kind of individual expression has something for it because it allows for innovation mm. like most architects you know you're always rubbing up against those kind of uh, urban design controls or planning controls but you know again constraints can can be useful but at a certain point you go well what happened to the idea of just straight diversity mm. um, diversity of type diversity of language as a pluralist and I think a radio show or podcast sort of turns you into a pluralist. You know, uh, a plural city I tend to find is a is a good one, or a plural suburb. I don't tend I don't tend towards the homogenous. So mm. I like the idea that there's a series of uh, there is a diversity. Mm. Yeah. But again, it's uh, the contemporary model is not one of choice. It's not a choice no, to live in that house and in that neighbourhood. Well, it's not increasingly it, less. Well, and, and that goes at the, at the metropolitan level. Like, there's not a lot of choice once you're there. There's not a lot of choice to go there in the first place because if you're price restricted, yeah, I mean you're you're going to a place with um, seemingly seemingly affordable. So at its worst, mm. contemporary suburban development is apparently affordable. But once you start spending a third of your income on transport, yeah. and your health impacts are medically, you know, statistically shown that you're at greater risk of heart disease, productivity losses, yeah. Yeah. Cars. you're spending an hour in the car each way, there's two cars, there's three cars, there's four cars in an extended family or teenager situation. This is not a, this, so you know, the basic urban design stuff of connect, well-connected, walkable cities I'm not advocating. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. That, of course, is a good, yeah, yeah, is a good yeah. idea. But I mean, you would. You're not. You'd never. You'd. You talk about Broadacre City. You talk about how Frank Lloyd Wright thought this is this idea of the city, the the suburb that didn't really have a city that it needed to serve. And we sort of yeah. recognise that actually, what that's fundamentally what the suburb does. Yeah, it serves the city. So that connection is is not, in your view, ever a vehicle based one. Well, it can be a vehicle based. There's nothing inherently wrong with cars either. What's wrong with cars is when they're the only model of transportation. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, if you can walk to a tram stop or a train stop, or there's a really decent bus service, or you have access to car share, automated cars, bikes, lanes, you know, you have a you have a you have a, uh, a variety of options. But the reality for a lot of people who live in the suburbs is there is only one option. Mm. And that, well, maybe there's two. There's yeah. either own a car or there's walk a long way to a relatively poorly serviced public transport route that doesn't run on Sundays. Mm. Yeah. And that finishes at 6 p.m. Yeah. And I think, you know, a, a lot of the problem um, to date has been that the more affordable homes tend to be the furthest away. And so, therefore, the people who potentially can least afford to have two cars and and, yeah. and travel long distances and so on are, are actually forced into this position of yeah. of having to do all of those that's things. Right. Yeah, I think there's also partly this really stupid, you know, this false idea that supply is the reason. So you co you start correlating cheap land supply with housing affordability, and that's which correlates with the distance. It's, yeah. Totally, and you know, we um we recently spoke with Shamabil Yakov, and I recommend you read some of his stuff or, or actually you'd really like his book Generation Rent yep. um, he's an economist so he brings a different lens to the discussion though. of course it's it's full of stuff you don't often see called facts which <laughs> is a really interesting analysis of it because um, he, he 
breaks down all of that sort of stuff and and his his sort of one liner is that the solution to the affordability crisis that we're in in New Zealand is not one answer it's this complex yeah. series of solutions but of course politically and publicly it's much easier and and you'll see across our different politicians and their different spectra they'll each have their thing the answer is immigration yeah. the answer is land supply the yeah. answer is and and it's just one of it's just picking that one item which kind of just simplifies makes things simplistic down to these really um, just inadequate and, and incorrect answers and solutions to it. It sounds incredibly valuable work. In the next part of the interview, Stuart discusses the fantastic Bisley Place House in Queensland, which prompted him to write New Suburban, the changing nature of the family unit and the perils of neighbourhood design covenants. The project in the, uh, that really was the impetus for the book New Suburban was this house in uh, suburban Brisbane uh, in Bisley Place by James Russell. And this is a book, this is a, um, a house, sorry, on the suburban frontier uh, where a client just wanted something different to the standard offer that was being presented to them. And they were allowed, they were allowed to, you know, some very strict covenants on the site. But they contacted James Russell, who is an incredibly, one of Australia's best residential architects working out of Brisbane, and James Russell did, said yeah, I'll do it. Probably, I don't know what the fee basis was like, these guys didn't have a lot of money, and I mean he presented the argument, which a few architects I, I know have presented when working in a more suburban context, where they said, well what were you going to spend on your 400 square metre house? Yes. I'll give you a 250 square metre house, yeah. half of which is going to be technically outside. Mm. You've actually got a 125 square metre house. It'll cost you the same amount of money, but mm. you know. Yeah. And that house, and I went to that house and hung out, hang out with the owner, Wayne, and, and James Russell, and uh, John Elway, who works for him, and a, and a couple of others, Anthony Mark. Um, and we were standing there and uh, in the front yard, and it was in the kitchen space, having beers, and it was kind of like the hub of the street. This, this project was reclaiming the, the suburban street and in that generous suburban way. And what I really liked about this, which is in, in the book, and you can see an image in the book, and I'm sure it's online if you Google this particular house, right? I'm sure you can yes, find yeah, it. Yes, yeah, it's really good. Home of the Year, wasn't it? In Australia, <coughs> was that correct? Uh, it, it won a several won a awards. A couple of awards, uh, yeah. It might have won awards in Queensland. I don't know if it won, an, I don't know if it won. We don't have a home of a, we don't have that same Home mm. of the Year thing you have in New Zealand. It's a very mature um, Home of the Year process here. We don't. We sort of have sort of equivalence to the institute. It's not quite the same. Anyway, mm. so what I thought was really cool about this is you talk you talk about especially at the front of the book about uh, something that we've mentioned before. Is as anyone who's kind of had a design training would probably agree with that constraints are like the best friend of design. Yeah. And you've got a line here that, that this particular house had a requirement to have a twenty-two degree pitched roof. But what they've done is they've built this parapet right to the street and sloped the roof away. And I think what you say here is, you know, it shows how unnecessary restrictions can easily be subverted. Yeah. It was a really great kind of summary because, you know, you can imagine the conversation where they go, hey, it's fully compliant. And they're like, oh, it's not what we wrote that covenant to achieve. Damn it. Right. But we can't. Yes, this is oh. a dreadful outcome. We've got a well-designed building. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Because the covenant's trying to get a house like the house next to it. Well, the Covenant's just trying to avoid poor people moving in. Yeah, right. It's actually a form of urban apartheid. Wow. Urban apartheid. I mean, the Covenant is has a minimum house area. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Square, a minimum house area. Yeah. Two, two, gar two car parks, two garages, side by side, not tandem. 
again subverted brilliantly by making them four and making the spaces beyond the perforated garage doors not just garages mm. so a great a court a courtyard house the model that we should build and we don't build enough of an active front yard a relatively modest backyard that's got a transparent fence to a, uh, um, a state park at the back of it yeah borrows all the amenity from that so yeah total subversion and but very clever and also a lot of technically outside spaces the um in australia the, the building code of australia national construction code as it is now section j has energy rating requirements and these are based on a pretty much a german model of highly insulated interiors in queensland these make no sense no and um people like james russell have worked this out pretty quickly so this is why half the spaces are technically outside so they can so that like the kitchen for example kitchen dining room which sits at the front of this house is technically an outside space it can be sealed up but that's just so that it can be airy and light mm. and mm. you know and and um and kind of um leaky mm. Mm. like the leaky is useful so it's actually also subverting a whole lot of building code stuff as yeah, well. yeah 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 and this is a house that delivered for you know like several hundred thousand dollars this this house is and th that house was basically enough to make me want to write this book yeah wow I think it's fascinating that, you know, intended or not, these wider discriminatory outcomes from those types of requirements. Yeah. And, you know, we've had a similar trend in, in terms of the general, I'm sure it's actually probably global, the trend towards increasing house size and decreasing lot size. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's throughout. The biggest door in the building is the garage door. You know, yeah. that, that, that whole kind of move, you know. What's that composition <coughs> thing? How do you resolve that on a relatively small site? Mm. An enormous garage door. That's one of the best. The James mm. Russell Prize, one of the best ways we've ever seen to do that. The other is, you know, you just you don't you just deal with car parking in a different way. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, also I think that there's a real issue with this sort of creating very monotonous spaces. I mean, if you took all of the fixtures and fittings out of a lot of new homes, it would be very difficult, apart from room size, to tell what you might use each room for. Yeah, it's a good point. There's no sort of, where's the spatial dynamism that we yeah. might have seen in, in earlier years or earlier forms of the suburban housing? Yeah, and you think about the 70s suburban house with clear story windows mm. and you know, materials. We just have plasterboard, downlit, dark interiors. Mm. Well, you know, lots of them. Mm. Um, maybe it'll be useful, but it's hard to know how. Mm. So this, I think, I think it's it's really cool too that you kind of talk about uh, all the historical things that have contributed to the model. You talk about the nuclear family, and of course how less and less common that's becoming. How there's greater diversity of different types of, you know, family units. Yeah, that idea of flexibility caters to that. But um, something else I'd be kind of interested in hearing your thoughts on is just the ability to actually live in a home for your life, and as your needs change through your life, because. Again, we are very hidebound here by, you know, the house is getting a bit, bit small with the kids, so we've got to move now to another area. That ability to flex through that, have them leave, have them, you know, sometimes you might actually want to stay in where you live, in the community that you live in. Yeah, aging in As place. you get older, and, you know, they call it lifetime homes in the UK, and it's not yet part of our actual legislative requirement here. Is, is there anything like that in Australia that forces you to recognise it? Or? Not at a planning, not at a planning level or, or regulatory level, but there are some good examples of it. In my, in my previous book, there was a great project in um, Perth by Simon Anderson, which was a sort of pre-subdivided family house 
that was operating as one big house, mm -hmm. but without a lot of without a lot of stuffing around, it could be split into two houses, separated off as kids left, and then rented out, mm -hmm. or because the subdivision had been set up, or just sold straight sold off. It's essentially a built superannuation strategy. Yeah, so you, you chop the house in half and you just cash it off. But it was designed that way. <coughs> designed now for some people having 20 years or 10 years from, from now. So that but that kind of thinking is, that's something, you know, when you get a good architect bringing to the table, mm. it's not stuff that's being, it's certainly not regulated and, and it's not, not doesn't tend to be asked for a lot. I mean, people move house a fair bit, but is that a consequence of the lack of flexibility yeah. in the houses? Mm. You know, if, if the houses were more flexible, would people stay more? Yeah, they probably they probably would. Oh, so I mean, mm. you know, it's only anecdotal. But I mean, yeah, the, the, I the classic so. example in 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 a North Melbourne is um, Greek and Italian migrants who the nonnas are still there. Mm. Uh, the blokes died. They don't want to move. They've got a very large site. If they had a granny flat, like literally a granny flat, they could then rent out the rest of the house. And you know, the entrances were worked out properly. Mm. They could have a situation where they could have all the benefits of staying in place and the flexibility of an, an income stream. Exactly. It, be, it could be their income. Mm, mm, mm. Actually, that's one of the good things about the new plan, is that it is allowing for minor dwellings on the single house unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, I'm really excited about because I think it starts to, to address some of those issues. Or, you know, um, a teenager who or sort of young adult who doesn't quite have the wherewithal perhaps studying or whatever to move out of home you know there's an independent um, possibility for them yep. to live on site or a, somebody who's um, unwell you know yep. just yep. or, or another some, uh, rental income you know or a person who can't afford to exactly move exactly i mean affordability is is, is another elephant in the oh, in the room yeah in the small room yeah yeah, yeah, like, yeah what happens when kids don't leave home anymore i mean yeah. i raced out of home you know as soon as i could but the reality is a, is a, is a different one now and that's changed so rapidly as well. Mm. I mean, the last sort of decade or so has seen you know, house prices in Auckland just skyrocket out of all proportion. Yeah. It's really hard to just get an entry level. Yeah, there's some good data on that about yeah. the percentage of income that you now, you know. And that's, you know, that's right what um, Shama Beale and his, wife, uh, his wife's book is all about. And I think we perceive it as being very rapid, but really the, the data actually indicates it goes back to the 90s. Where it begins, you can actually see you can actually see it happen. It has spiked up, of course, but actually those those things about home ownership rates, and the age of people who own homes, and the um, the rate at which the state mm. was building houses versus the need at which they ne they needed to be built, yeah. those things actually uh, you know it's, you can't <laughs> deny the data, and no. it goes back way further than you think. It just sort of it's just that really the wheels have only really fallen off catastrophically so recently and it's all become so much more apparent. I just but there's latent like, issues that go way oh, further than I thought. Yeah, no, I know, I don't disagree with that, but I think it's just reached a, a real tipping point, a crisis yeah. point, perhaps, yeah. you know, in the last decade, where it's, it, it had got ridiculous, but yeah. people were just managing to yeah, yeah, keep yeah. their nose above the tide line and now it's just... So, um, has there been a similar, there's been similar issues in... Oh yeah, Sydney and Melbourne. The, I mean, the affordability thing is a, is incredibly problematic. I mean, I was at a great pre um, student congress presentation recently. No, last uh, last year, and it was around 
this affordability issue. And it was, this was great. This was young architects going, yep. we will never enter the property market. And these guys were doing a pitch to host a student congress in Sydney. And they won it. I think it's this year or next year. And they quickly put together a bit of a, a bit of analysis. And um, they showed an apartment in Bondi, which was, you know, 800 grand or something. And then they uh, found a chateau in France that cost the same amount of money. <laughs> yeah. And it's like 17 bedrooms or something yeah. like that. So you could buy a flat. Yeah. In Bondi or Chateau. Yeah. So Australia, you know, in the last 25 years, 25 years has gone from a country where it was real estate was relatively, relatively cheap yep. to one where it's now yeah. prohibitively expensive. Yep. And that's generated wealth. It's generated wealth for people who essentially didn't need it. Yeah. It's a, and it's a bigger issue around privilege, generational privilege. But it's affected, it's, affected, it's affected property, it's affected people's access to the market. And what it does, I think, is it, it forces alternate um, thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, think the, I think the idea of adult share living, co-investment, alternate development models. Nightingale's, there's some, mm. some of these yeah, sorts Nightingale of is part really of this phenomenon yeah. as well, which yep. is ex- ex- you know, an incredibly interesting project coming out of Melbourne, but spreading, um, spreading I suspect, uh, to New Zealand soon as well. And this is a model where the development paradigm is turned on its head and architects become developers mm. by collectivising. Mm. Some good old-fashioned, let's do this together. Let's uh, stick 100 grand each in and let's raise a couple million bucks. Let's buy a site. Let's get a development application. Let's do a development without developers and let's make it good. Let's, let's, let's cap the, the uh, profit. Yep. To yep. Normal. Yep. Higher than bank interest, but you know, normal. Well, the goal at the end is to have a house, not a profit. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the goal in this case is to have a f- reasonably well well designed affordable housing, and what the Nightingale model does, what well, it strengthened the model, which I mean, Jeremy and McLeod from Breathe Architecture effectively designed it, is a separation between investors and purchasers. Mm. Traditional cooperative models. Uh, that architects have done and, uh, and others, and there's been a long history of those, tended to, the idea was you put in X amount of money and at the end of it you got a dwelling. You know, let's say you had a 10 house scheme and you all put, and this, 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 this separates those two things out. If you, you're either an investor or you're a purchaser. So you're either putting in 100 grand as an investor or you're putting in five, 600 grand as a purchaser. Mm-hmm. And they're two different groups of people. Mm-hmm. The investor gets a return um, roughly um, 15% um, over the period like per, per annum investment return if, if the numbers work out and then the uh, purchaser buys a house or a dwelling apartment that's then of which the sale price is then price controlled into the future right and this is one of the most interesting parts of the Nightingale model so if I've purchased an apartment in a Nightingale project and I seek to sell it later on, which you probably would do, the price growth in that dwelling is indexed to the average price growth of the suburb that it's located in. Yeah. This is to prevent design becoming, good design becoming more expensive. Yep. Mm. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's some dark matter design that will mean that this building will just be still a, an accessible offer. So the whole, it's contrary to the primacy we have yes. here that, that property is how we make all our money. Yes. And any attempt to throttle that 
any attempt to control that is, ju- you know, just like the, 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 the just the removal of all of your freedom to speculate on the property well, market because yeah. we're overly reliant on it as our way of building our wealth and yeah. our, our retirement. That's right. And a lot of people, and this still allows for equity growth, this mm. model. It just allows for it. What it does is it, it means that good design doesn't become expensive because the danger with well designed work is it'll become an enclave that is not accessible. Yeah. Um, it kind of, and it just reinforces the idea that good design costs money. Mm. Yeah. So it sort of regulates that. It's, it's an and ghettos aren't about socio-economic level. They're about diver- homogeneity or lack of diversity. A yeah. whole suburb full of rich people is still a ghetto. And that's a big problem. That's a big problem globally. Is you know the, the, one of the consequences of the and this is what's very interesting about the serious debate in Sydney. Uh, I was there last week, and this fantastic piece of social housing, public housing project in Millers Point in Sydney, which is like rich, literally in the heart of Sydney. Mm the government wants to sell the site the government will sell the site and has turned down a heritage uh, permit on the site and this will outside of the kind of architectural travesty because uh, this project is an exceptional piece of housing design this will move the people out and it, what it comes down to it's not an extension of the refugee issue it's like underprivileged people shouldn't be in the city. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one can admit that. Yeah. But it's another form of urban apartheid. It's yeah. like this level of amenity should not be accessible to the underprivileged. And it's a deeply problematic idea about the city because the city is is almost the opposite of that. Uh, look, I think it's, you know, real strong parallel mm. here, you know, the suggestion that anything uh, anything done publicly housing New Zealand and things like that, the critique of the level of amenity provided there is is is, is really just dog whistling. It's just yeah. gently veiled ideas that those people in quotes mm. aren't entitled to to yeah. that. Yeah. Which yeah. is really malignant, you know. Yeah. <coughs> what you what you don't realize is that if you're a key worker and you live an hour out of the city and you've got to travel an hour to earn not a lot of money, at a certain point you just won't do it. Mm. No. And then who's going to wait your tables? Yeah. Mm. Um, Stuart, thanks very much for joining us. By the time this goes out, you will have done your national tour, gone through Architecture Week, which I hope goes fantastically, and you get to see heaps of cool things in your visit here. You book new suburbans available at Alto and others. Yes. You are blogging at designfiles.net. The design... The, the design, design the files. Net, yeah, um, in the architecture section. Yep. Um, you can and, and, and then in other architecture AU I do a bit of writing for them too. But I wanted to say guys, it's so important that you guys are doing 76 more rooms. I'm a, I'm a fan of the show and uh, this is important work and I know what it takes to do it. So uh, congratulations on a great podcast. Thanks very much. Thank There's you. that card. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks Cheers. so much. <laughs> so that was Australian architect Stuart Harrison. He was talking to Arch and Tash. Nice job, you guys. Um, do you like his book? It's quite cool how it turns that notion of the suburbs being dead and problematic on its head. Oh, it's a cracking book. Um, and it's got a really beautiful range of uh, projects in it from both New Zealand and Australia. Um, and I also love that along with the, the beautiful pictures, there's um, also drawings, plans, sections, mm. which are, are just so invaluable in terms of taking you right into the project. The problem remains, though, that people often in suburban developments, it might be one big developer doing a whole lot with stupid houses. Do you think this book can inspire enough people to flip out of that model and, and change? 
the suburbs as we know them? I think it's going to be essential because what this does is um, deals with some of the things that we're already starting to deal with now with the new uh, unitary plan where we're starting to build in small spaces, we're starting to redevelop the city and, and densify the suburbs. And I think, you know, just look at the plan on the page there where it starts to provide solutions to the problems that that poses. So you're saying this kind of thinking is really influencing development that's happening in Auckland at least at the moment and probably other cities too. I'd, I'd like to think that it will. I, yeah, I don't know that it is at the moment, but I absolutely agree that as our lot sizes get smaller, the case for good architecture is, is only more important, mm. and we need to start rethinking that traditional model, which has been pretty much untouched for the last 50 years. So, yeah, I guess that's the next step for developers to, to pick this up and get on board. Mm. What do you think about the fact that it actually amalgamates Australia and New Zealand housing into one? Not amalgamates, but it considers them kind of side by side. I don't see a problem with that at all mm. because a lot of the climatic conditions are a little bit related and also the way their suburbs are developed, it's kind of contemporaneous to a lot of New Zealand's more problematic mm. areas too, right? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And culturally I think we are more akin to um, Australia than we are to, say, other parts of the world. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with it either. Mm. Did you have a problem with it, Art? I think it it dovetails nicely with some of the things we'll talk about in episode 11 but there's always, I think, you know, we've always had this um, we've always had this slight insecurity about our identity and um, and and I think it's. I agree. I actually agree that it's much better considered side by side for some of those reasons. But it also it actually lifts both sides of the Tasman's game in that respect. I think. And I think it is. It, it is a really good way to actually compare and contrast the differences as well. Mm. Mm. So thanks for listening to Seventy Six Small Rooms. This episode ten. So I can't remember what's coming up in the next one. Well, because we're so organised, and um, we've already talked to Patrick Reynolds and John Walsh about their new book. City House Country House um, and we had a great chat with them um, which is, I just said it, um, it gives you a really good insight into New Zealand architecture at the moment and, and what it is that we're doing um, sort of post-recession and it's um, yeah, it's a really a great book um, and we talked to them about how they put that together and why and also it's got some great stuff in it about actually the, the role of media which yes. we hope to touch on as well. Um, also recently there were the uh, obviously the Architecture Awards and the gold medal recipient this year, Wellington architect Roger Walker. Um, some great stuff online if you missed any of it at the time. I really recommend you uh, listen to his interview with Kim Hill, which is really great. And the NZIA produced video that they do every year for the gold medal recipient is a particularly good one this year. Um, we could probably share that on our Facebook page. I think we should. So that's it from us. Thanks again for your patience. We're going to crack this episode and the next one out very quickly. Um, That's it from the 76 Small Rooms team. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Do you guys do carts? Do what? Carts. Carts? Well, it's an old radio thing when they used to be a physical thing, but I'm Stuart Harrison, you're listening to 76 Small Rooms. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. so you'd always have one of those would plug in all the way through. Yeah. Except you'd have like be, you'd have like flavour flay. Yeah. <laughs>